how's it good? How's it good? <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> is it the sort of heartache is uh, getting better? <laughs> Does it get better as an England fan? I'm sure you know. <clears throat> yeah, you've got plenty f- of final access. <laughs> you got you get four years and then it sort of happens again, so you're fine. I well, I don't think we'll be in another quarterfinal in four years, but <laughs> yeah, it was a good game. Yeah. No, I thought, I mean, it was our best game of the tournament. I thought going forward, at least, it was just, which a lot of that is probably game state stuff, given that England scored so early and was happy to sit back. But it was our best game, I thought. Just taking a look at the um, shots now. 14 versus 8. Obviously, that's raw shot numbers. But, but um, yeah, the, I mean, the goals are pretty good. And um, there was that, that chance really early by, I can't remember who it was, but yeah, when, Tank Freddy had the chance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that build-up play was so good by Sinclair. Yeah, but, oh, but it was yeah. it was tough. I was so worried there at the, during like the first fifteen minutes that we were on course to pull a Brazil and just <laughs> completely collapse. Yeah, that would have been. Well, you had the whole game, so I don't understand. You had the rest of the game, but well, I mean, we can't score. That was that's been the issue the whole tournament, right? Is mm. How many? I mean, that was our fourth goal of the tournament. Four goals in five games. It's not going to get you to a semi-final. Not like England. <laughs> <laughs> it is like this was our chance. I mean, you're never Canada. Well, first off, we're never going to have another Women's World Cup for sure in Canada, and we never would have because of the like fixed seating as easy a route to get to the final. Like it really, I sort of just felt like it would, it could happen just because. We had, I mean, it would have been Japan or Australia next before we knew it was going to be Japan. And Japan, I think, would have been beatable for Canada. I don't know. It's just like, it looked like this could have been the one chance. And I really think it's going to be a long time, if ever, until we get another chance like that. Yeah, but that's the thing with tournament football. It's so hit and miss. Like, mm-hmm. you, you have to take your chances and it's, it's down to a lot of luck and you can't really, you know, call it beforehand. So these, like, these things happen. You get games like that where... If you play that game another ninety nine times, you guys might have won. You know, so it's just yeah, that's the annoying thing. It was even more than luck, just because I mean the draw was fixed. As yeah, we yeah. talked about before, right? Yeah. So it's like just the fact that we our side of the draw didn't have U.S., Germany, or France. Mm. We're probably one, two, three. It just I don't know. It was a sad day. Japan as well. They're a good side, but you probably want to face them over the United States or Germany as well. Yeah, I mean, Japan is beatable. Japan didn't look great against Australia, I didn't think. And Japan, they've had some moments. They we've played them. We played them in a lot of in a couple of friendlies in Edmonton last year. And one we lost like a last minute goal, and the other one, but like we played them well. I mean, I think we could have we could have beaten Japan. I think we would have been underdogs. But we definitely could have beaten them. What do you think going into the next round of fixtures? Who's going to get to the final? I think it'll be Germany Japan, yeah. which I think is the best final. Given the way it's set up, I think that would have been the best final. The States don't look, they haven't really set the tournament on fire as much as people would have you know, expected. But I mean, they have looked really, really solid at the back. Um, Julie Johnson has probably been one of the best, if not the best, center back of the tournament this year. And they've, I mean, have they they've conceded the one goal against Australia? Is that it? Yeah, I think you might be right. Yeah, so I mean, it'll be, it'll be a good game, but yeah. I think Germany is a stronger team. I think their big test was France. Who they? I mean, they France probably outplayed them. 
especially in the oh, first yeah. half. Definitely. Yeah. And even even in the second half, there were so many chances. And after going, you know, 1-1 after that uh, yeah. penalty. but Oh, well, that chance right at the end in, like, oh. in the second half of extra time. <laughs> she was wide open in front of the goal. That was... Glaring. Yeah. Yeah. And Nassib had that one chance in the first minute of the game, which she missed as well. So, oh, that was a fun game. That was a really fun game. I think that was the best game of the tournament so far. Yeah, I'd have to. And agree. I think probably the two best teams. Yeah, it's just. Uh, I mean, I was thinking afterwards, it could have easily been a, if that was the final. That would have been like a really satisfying game to have as the final. And I also can't remember a penalty shootout where both teams <laughs> scored the opening <laughs> nine. I think I remember <coughs> there was a Euro. U21 shootout way back, I think it would have been around 2006, between England and Netherlands, that ended up going like 15 shots, yep. the players were retaking shots, Yeah, I remember and that. everyone was scoring in that one, and that's the only one I can remember where I think it went the first nine shots without a miss. I can't remember any others that were that, had that many goals. Welcome to episode 7 of the Analytics FC podcast. I'm Sam Gregory, joined as always by Tom Warville. And this week our guest is Dustin Ward, also known as Saturday on the Couch, who's gotten a lot of a lot of reception recently for his StatsBomb article. So can you tell us a bit about yourself, Dustin, and how you got involved in StatsBomb? Yeah, so I, uh, I have very little uh, soccer background, really. I'm a baseball player, and just really a few years ago I kind of got into soccer and it's, it's, I mean, it's a hard game to kind of comprehend just watching it. And so, I mean, I found myself watching games and having a good time watching it and then kind of thinking, what, what's happening? Why is this happening? Why is one team, you know, seem like they're winning, they're dominating, and the other team's not? I mean, <clears throat> the final score can only tell you so much when there's only one, two, or three goals. And so I kind of just, you know, wanted to, to learn more about what was going on, and so I started, you know, investigating shots, uh, you know, expected goals, different stuff like that, um, and then started writing about it. And I guess uh, <coughs> James or Ted, they liked it, and they wanted me to write some stuff on Stats Bomb, and so I have, and hopefully, hopefully, some people have enjoyed it. And that sort of background of baseball, did you say, is that, did you look at the stats of that as well and sort of try to pull that across to football, or is it purely coming from a complete, like, new perspective? No, I mean, I was a, I mean, I'm a huge sports fan, and I love anything that tells you more about the game, and uh, definitely baseball was the first, the first stats love of that, I guess, you know, I'm sure a lot of people that are listening to this have read Moneyball, and that was kind of, you know, my start into the into the stats world of baseball and, you know, <clears throat> that kind of led to basketball, football, and then now soccer. So you've done the most recent piece you wrote, which got a lot of attention was about in-game analysis and the idea of sort of adjust, well, scouting the team before a game and then adjusting. And you mentioned the Pittsburgh Pirates have this like seven team, the seven person analytics team that travels. Do you think that we're ever going to get to that sort of level in football? I mean, I ha- I don't know, but I think definitely should. I think the Pirates only one guy traveled, but um, it's it's a much more complicated game, and I think soccer is. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm saying soccer. You're saying football, but uh, <laughs> well, we switch. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I keep I keep my sports separate, um, but uh, and I think the potential for kind of in-game analysis is is so much higher in soccer than in baseball because uh, or you know, it's kind of like basketball too, but 
there's just so much going on that even the best managers can't comprehend everything at once. You know, I mean, there's 22 people out there moving around fast. The ball's moving around fast. And so the more people you have uh, getting you information, feeding it down to the coaches, feeding it down to the players, the better prepared you should be. That sort of last point you just made about really communication uh, was something that really stuck out for me in the piece. And uh, that certainly seems to be one of the main stumbling blocks in terms of getting that buy-in of analytics is the communication with, say, coaches and players. Would you, would you agree with that? And do you think there are, like, that change will happen where people buy in in the long term? I, I, I mean, I, I have no inside information. I'm very True. outside the, the you know, sport. I'm just a fan. But if you're a coach, if you're a player, and this guy comes to you and shows you that, hey, if you, uh, you know, every time you lose the ball, they're attacking right through where you've, you know, every time you go up the left side, they're attacking right back through to your right. Um, that's something that, I mean, you look bad when people are attacking right by you. If someone shows you a way to, you know, play better, then you're going to, every player wants to play better. And if an analytics guy can help you do that, it's going to catch on. You know, I mean, it's, it has to. In the piece, the in-game analysis piece, you looked at an AC Milan-Torino game. And I'm curious, just give, if you can give like a little overview over what what you think would have changed in that game had some of these things been implemented at the time. Well, so I just did the halftime thing, so I, I didn't actually go through and see if they changed it at the half, you know, because I I didn't want to know what happened in the second half when I was doing the analysis. But if you knew beforehand, so kind of the pregame scouting report I looked at was uh, Torino's going to have the ball deep in their own half and play basically very, very much to the center of the pitch. And it didn't really look like Milan had a plan, plan for either pressing or sitting back. It, it almost looked like they were letting Torino play how they wanted to play. And kind of if you, if you knew beforehand what they were going to try to do, which, I mean, they, they might have. It's, it's, a hard, it's a hard game to, it's hard for me to say Milan had no clue what they were doing, but it looked like they were not that prepared. And so if you knew that Torino was going to stay deep in their own half and then try to quickly strike to the middle of the pitch, you'd be much more prepared and you can, you can try to make them do something that they they're not good at that. They don't do usually. You want to force teams to do something they don't, they don't usually do. Is this sort of whole idea, because it's one that's relatively, or I'd say relatively, is very new, is a lot of this fueled by what you've read in sort of Pep Confidential or, or other sources, or is it the only area you've seen it implemented before? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that was the main kind of trigger for it. Uh, American football, it's very common. You see players on the sideline looking at printouts and uh, formations and pictures and stuff all the time and talking to people up in the booth. And so kind of that background might help. But, yeah, the Pep book, uh, when Pep comes off and the first thing he thinks at halftime is to ask the people upstairs what they're seeing, I think that's kind of an indication that, you know, coaches need more information. They can't. If Pep can't understand the game on his own, no one can, you know. So <laughs> that's that kind of keyed the the idea really of providing as much information as you can to these coaches. You know, one thing about this article too is it 
interlaid sort of the statistical analysis with the video analysis. And we know there already is a lot of sort of video analysis and video. There are video analysts at almost, I'm sure, every single big club, even if there isn't a specific statistics or analytics guy. How do you think these two concepts sort of mesh together? And how do you think coaches accept the idea of using analytics on top of the video, given that they're already, I assume they're already using this sort of video analysis? Yeah, I I don't know. I don't really view them that separately. It's just another, it's just another source. And like you said, if there's video analysts at every club, they'll be more accepting if you, you know, kind of overlay the two. So if if you just show them a number, maybe it doesn't get uh, the point across as well as if you have some examples of like this is what happens when. So and so, you know, our two midfielders get stacked up on the left on the offensive attack. Then they attack, you know, they pick up this many yards coming through the right. Well, that, that doesn't sound as good as here's two examples of this when it happens. Then it's kind of easier to fix when you, when you actually see the example of what you, you know, instead of looking at a spreadsheet, I guess. And in terms of data sources, um, quite a lot of it was taken from StatZone. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the. I mean, a lot of it was taken from StatZone. So if you're watching a game, you know that the StatZone updates basically live, the the on-the-ball stuff. But for the kind of thing I was doing, you would have to... So I went back through to to chart all the defensive stuff, which obviously took way more than 45 minutes, you know. So if you wanted to do this, if a team wanted to do this, they would obviously need more than just the Opta website. But I assume they have... I'm assuming these big teams have much better data streams than us regular fans, you know, and so that's that would be one of the big things you need if you wanted to uh, do this at halftime in a, as a big club. You need some way to track the pressure, some way to track uh, dribbles because Opta doesn't really track dribbles. Um, but I don't think that's that big of a – it shouldn't be that big of a problem for teams with these huge budgets, I don't think. Do you think there's also sort of a risk of overcompensating with this in-game analysis? I mean, when we look at a 45-minute sample versus however much of the season you've already seen of a team, there is sort of this tendency to change everything you're doing to match what's going on in the first 45, and the team comes out completely differently in the second half that might match more of what they've done throughout the season. Do you think that this in-game analysis might sort of put up blinders and get us looking really, really in-depth at one specific thing, which is part of, which is a small part of a really big sample? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not a, I'm not saying it's a cure-all or anything, but if there's something very obvious that I think there was in the Torino game, I mean, if there's something that you can fix pretty quickly, like you're leaving one side of the midfield open or your right backs very, being very lazy and not you know, pressuring the ball at all, that's something you can show them at halftime. And, I mean, I don't really see – there's not really – I don't think that's obsessing over one thing and you're going to lose another thing. It's, it's, just another, it's just another piece of the puzzle. You know, it's not like you plug this in and, oh, boom, your second halves are always going to be great. It's, it's a very small – I think it's a small advantage, but I, I do think that teams that do this would have an advantage over teams that don't. It's, it, but, but a small one, you know, it's not, not a cure-all. A couple of the things that we in the article um, were sort of pointed out that you, as the theoretical defensive analyst, said that sort of playing centrally in the final third and deep in their own half, sort of the measurement of that metric for uh, Torino was like highlighted to the coach. 
I like from from reading it, I didn't really understand why that was sort of a key input. That's probably because my like tactical insight is like next to nothing. But uh, so <laughs> you're saying why is that? Why is that key? Yeah. So why the, there were a few things you pulled out. Why were those sort of you thought they were key? Uh, my tactical input's very little too. Uh, <laughs> I'm just <laughs> looking at the numbers, but I would say because they were so extreme that so Torino already is like the average completion is like second closest to goal in all of Europe. Right. And when they played teams that defended similarly to AC Milan, it was even farther. So when something was that extreme, it's, it's something they're trying to do. So I, I'm assuming that it's something they're specifically trying to do is keep the ball deep and kind of stretch defenses out. And centrally, no one in Europe completed as many passes in the center of the pitch as Torino. So the, that tells me that it's something they're specifically focusing on doing. And generally, I think you want to take away the things the other team is specifically trying to do because that's you know, what, what their whole offense is kind of centered around, the things they're, they're good at and they're trying to do. So that's why I pulled those two, two things out because they're so... And that's really why I looked at Torino in the first place because they're such a weird weird team you know I, I like seeing weird stuff like that and it's it's it just stood out so you've talked a little bit about sort of looking at teams as a whole and comparing them to other teams and that's been one of your big focus and then from a baseball perspective this reminded me immediately of player comps which mm-hmm. we have all the time in baseball is that sort of what you're trying to get at with the idea of okay we're looking at qpr and they play a lot like say torino and just to sort of compare across leagues and do these higher level, I guess, macro team player comp kind of ideas? Player, player comps is a good kind of thing out here. I, I have almost no confidence in my ability to tell how good a player is um, because of how... So in baseball, it's very easy to tell how good a player is because he's so separate from the rest of the team. Um, in soccer, it's... I, I mean, with a few exceptions, it's very hard because the rest of the team is so enmeshed with that one player. Um, and so the team comps, it really just started out with me wanting to know, you know, how certain teams are playing. And then, you know, I noticed, I think I noticed like Swansea and Gladbach played somewhat similarly. And that just kind of got me curious on who else played similarly. And then, so I just started doing the whole thing. There was no real kind of, uh, it was just kind of curiosity that led me that way. There was no you know, huge philosophical philosophy of leading up to that experiment. It was just kind of, oh, I wonder, I wonder who plays like them. I wonder who plays like them, and then that's that's kind of what resulted. But I'm I'm more confident at the team level, and very, I doubt, I doubt anything I would say about players. And I, I think that's just that's very that's a lot harder than looking at a team. I think player cops are difficult enough in baseball when you can't disentangle. I mean, I was, was looking, following some of the draft coverage, and even that, they uh, every single player comp seems to be Hall of Famer or a guy who's going to go to the <laughs> Hall of Fame, which obviously the first round of the draft is not going to give you 30-some Hall of Famers. So I think you're going to have the same issues in soccer going out. If When you go out farther, you could get sort of a better idea. But I think when you get down to the individual level, you're going to find it very hard to disentangle team effects from player effects looking at player comps. Yeah, and especially soccer because oftentimes it seems like you'll, you know, they'll play a different position when they move to a different team or they're doing something totally different. It's, I don't know, it's harder. They're looking at, I don't know, skills. 
it, it's very hard to separate in stats, I think. Uh, I'm sure some people can, but I, I'm, I can't right now. It's, it's very hard to disentangle. And using your playing styles piece, I mean, I wrote something as a sort of echo of what you were writing about the application of using it at the transfer market. Have you thought of any mm-hmm. other uh, like applications of this since you've written that piece? Um, I, I kind of used it for the you know, scouting report mm. thing where you're looking at teams that play similarly to you against your future opponent. So you want to see how they changed against teams that play like you do. So if you're a high-pressing team, you want to see how this team is done against high-pressing teams. You know, do they play more long balls? Uh, do they turn it over a lot? Um, do they go to the sides? Whatever. Because, I mean, that's, that, that helps more than how they play against, you know, whatever, QPR or Burnley or something, because that doesn't really have any effect on... If you play so much differently than QPR, you want to look at teams that play similarly to you and how other teams do against that. Uh, I mean, that's that's the kind of the main thing I've I've used it since then. And your your transfer market thing was about trying to find players that from similar teams, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like plugging and playing in different teams that play players that play in the same systems. I don't know. It's it, it sounds very good to me. I mean, it makes sense logically, but I don't think in the real world it would work as well. There's just so many. Uh, there's so much more variation among individual players. And, I mean, I guess if you want to stay the same, I guess teams should always be looking to get better. Um, and if you want to just replace the player, I don't know, I'm just kind of rambling here. But No, I think, I think you've got a point. I mean, from, from Pep Confidential, there's a thing in that saying essentially how Pep tries to sort of innovate every single year his tactics and, and sort of move things up a level throughout his career so he's never standing still and if you're looking to move your team to this new level of playing which he has then you can look for players that will fit potentially into that system you're quite trying to build so the signing of Thiago for example um, he wanted to move into that system where it's sort of more attacking more fluid and he highlighted that he fits that system so even if he's not using the numbers the the eye test that he used to pull off that signing is a sort of application of this idea of buying players that fit styles. The same thing with moving Philip Lahm to a defensive midfielder instead of a fullback. He could see the style they wanted to play. He fit that mould and moved them into that position. But once again, that's purely eye test most likely versus using numbers to quantify this. Yeah, and absolutely. And it, it shows you can't use just numbers really because Philip Lahm, there's no numbers for him at central midfield or you know, Javi Martinez was moved to center back, I think, when he was still at Bilbao. But, you know, there's no way you can't look at his stats in central midfield and think he's going to be a good center back. You know, the, it's, stats are part, a part of the whole, you know. One of the things you try to do with this piece is also disentangle the uh, league effects, right? Is say, okay, I think I was, I'm, I remember the one thing that stood to me is that you had grouped Manchester United with Empoli, which really <laughs> surprised me. And I've, I've tried to, look at standard deviations between leagues to sort of disentangle is this player just good in this league or is this player good in would this player be good across leagues do you think this will also work on a team basis to sort of say this is a team that's designed to play really well in europe because they match up well with other teams in other leagues to look because it is sometimes difficult to look how a team will do outside of domestic competition because we have such a small sample size of how teams actually do in europe yeah that's an interesting that's an interesting question. I don't really know 
I mean, yeah. So you you, talk, you take some random German team that plays. You know, there's a lot of German teams in the middle of the pack that play very similarly, where they play the big counter attack. Uh, you know, kind of long balls, very aggressive forward play. They play long long balls around the box, uh, and you would think that if that team's in the Europa League or whatever and playing against kind of the stereotypical Italian team who sits back, they would be, I, I don't know, you know, so <laughs> that's another thing it gets to is who controls uh, what, you know, if one team wants to play uh, long ball, you know, short passes into the box, and the other team's very good at denying it, which team comes out on top? Uh, that's an, I mean, that's obviously something I need to look at before, but I, I don't really know. If, I don't really know if you can say that um, for sure. It's 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 something to look at. Um, so another piece that I question that I pulled out was um, so with the sort of family trees of offenses and defenses. Is that something mm-hmm. that you see as like evolving season on season, or do you think these things will stay roughly the same? And have you looked at like changes season to season before? I haven't liked to change the season to season. I just have one season. Okay. But I assume there are probably changes month to month. Uh, you know, I'm, it's definitely an evolving process. You change the manager. You change players. I, I don't expect – I don't expect – I mean, some of the really – the very good teams simply have the ball so much that they're going to be similar year to year. And some of the really bad teams will be similar year to year. But there's going to be – there's going to be big changes for sure. Now, looking at the groupings, I mean, right away, some of these groups sort of stick out as like shitty groups to be in, and some <laughs> are good groups of teams. And do you think there's a, there could sort of be the idea of, look, we're in this group right now, I'm looking right now at uh, Everton, Spurs, and Real Madrid. That sounds like a good group to be in versus one of the worser groups. I mean, you've got one here with Parma, Palace, Hull, Newcastle, uh, Paderborn, that's not a group I want to be in. Do you think you can sort of look at these and say, let's try and emulate these things that this grouping does to get out of our group and get into a different type of playing style, which is on the surface much more successful? Yeah, so uh, I, I think so. Like you look at, uh, I think I used an example of maybe QPR and... Uh, I don't remember who it was. It was someone in athletic, in athletic Bilbao. And now Bilbao was in a, you know, a group of some other teams that are, are pretty good. You know, they're, they're a pretty good team. But they're somewhat similar to uh, a group of teams that were, were really bad. You know, they're struggling to score goals. It's Sunderland. Sunderland and Athletic Bilbao. <laughs> and so I maybe, if you're Sunderland... I mean, obviously, if you're Sunderland, you don't look at Bayern Munich and say, huh, we need, we need to start playing like them. But Athletic Bilbao, maybe you can say, what do they do differently than we do to be a middle-of-the-table team instead of a team that constantly is, you know, tipped for relegation by all the numbers guys and then somehow survives. So they, <laughs> that's the kind of team you might want to look at and say, what are they doing to make them, you know, whatever, 10 goals better uh, it's it's because we have a lot of similarities and they have a few differences, and are those the differences the reason they're you know middle of the table team instead of the bottom of the bottom of the table team? So another 
sort of thing from the uh, offences article was that you've highlighted how like Milan and Schalke were both like a, really appalling last season. Um, <laughs> but also you've got teams that in groups say like Marseille, Vallecano and Wolfsburg who you would see as the sort of ex- primary examples of really good attacking play. Do you think that this sort of thing you could give to a coach and, and take aside all the communication and the buy-in and say can we try and play more like these guys and try and coach that? And do you think this could be a useful coaching tool or do you think it's purely just interesting to see like the different styles of, of teams? I don't think it's a coaching tool, but it might be something that, I mean, coaching tools, I, when I think of coaching tools, I think of, you know, kind of techniques and stuff. Um, but it could be something that leads you to change your coach, you know, leads coaches to change things. And I, I think separating offense and defense it was, was for the articles, and it's not something that you can do. I, I'm guessing it's not something that you know, real teams do. You don't say, we want to play our defense like this and our offense like this. It's, it's, those two obviously feed way, you know, completely off each other. So I think it's more of a, you need to look at the, you know, what kind of team you want to be, not what kind of offense, what kind of defense. If you want to play like Marseille, it's not as easy as, as looking at this article or something. It's you know, it's a, obviously a lot of, a lot of training, a lot of work, a lot of fitness. Really, um, it it could be. <coughs> if you're Milan, I, I don't know who they hired, but I don't remember his name. But if you're the new manager, you can look at this stuff and say, "We got to change." You know, we got to change something. And obviously, you don't need this to to say that, but. Hmm. <laughs> you can just look, look at these metrics and say something, something needs to change should we change like this, should we change like that and that's when the coaching comes in is how to get from here to there you know? and do you think like, apart from some of the really obvious elite teams being like Barca um, uh, and maybe say like the Marseille bucket, do you think these, thing, these buckets indicate like good and bad teams or they're literally just differing styles of play because obviously you have some which contain really drab boring footballing teams like Sunderland, Sociedad, and then you have some of the exciting. Do you think that shows like quality in the teams or it's just literally a choice of that style of play? I mean, those two are tied together. You can't choose to play a certain way without being bad, without actually having you know, some of the quality. Or, or, you know, even if Barcelona chose to play like Paderborn or something, they wouldn't play uh, that poorly. Um, and again, I, I said this in the article several times, but these aren't. I'm not. I'm not uh, saying these are the set in stone groups of how these teams play together. It's it's how they're grouped together with the metrics. I, yeah. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> there's a lot of wiggle room. You know, it's not. <laughs> if someone disagrees with it, they might be right. This is how they were grouped with the metrics I chose. But yeah, quality obviously uh, influences how it, it happens and. It, it is interesting. I think it, it reflects play, play style more than quality because obviously Empoli was with PSG or something. But that also, I think for the fans it helps because it, it made me look like what is Empoli doing? Who's their manager? Why are they in this group? Uh, and so that kind of identifies, I think that identifies that manager as someone who knows what he's doing, you know. Um, and so that that's, I don't know, that's my answer on that. Yeah, I think you're right, and, and going back to Empoli, I think um, they're quite an interesting team, and I know uh, Eddie Howe, the Bournemouth manager, went to go and see sort of how they train and how they set up there, purely because the manager's taken them from like quite a small 
market team to one that's competing and doing quite well considering the budget they're on. So, yeah, they're on like uh, I think eleven million. I mean, they were last in Syria budget, and they you know had I think fourth possession, the fourth most passes into the opposing box. You know, very few passes into their own box. They were like fifteenth on the table, but had a lot of really really good looking metrics. And so you know, he's moved to Napoli now. Yep. So I think that'll be very very interesting to see uh, next year. So moving on to the piece you wrote about uh, Munchen Gladbach, which is the first sort of piece that I read of yours. Can you say like why they're quite a freakish team because they stuck out like a soft thumb in terms of expected goals for and against over quite a few seasons (laughs) for several years. So it it started uh, last year as when I kind of decided, I mean, I watched the EPL, I'm a Liverpool fan and I decided I want to know more about these other leagues. So I chose the Bundesliga and I was betting on the games. And so I had my own expected goals model and I would bet against Gladbach every week, and I would I lost a lot of money. <laughs> and so I was like, "What's what's going on this year?" I was looking at the expected goals, and again, they have less shots than their opponents. Uh, they were ex- expected goals. I think had them like a negative thirteen goal differential. It was just some insane numbers, and they're in the Champions League, you know. <laughs> and so I was just thinking, "What is going on here? Are they just the luckiest team ever for three straight years?" Which you know doesn't seem doesn't seem likely at all so I just kind of wanted to find out what was going on there that they could out- outperform expected goals three straight years more than any other team in the Bundesliga for any of those three years. Do you see any other teams going ahead to this year that are like that that you say this team is either really due for a regression or there's something weird happening with them? Uh, I haven't really looked through all the different teams to see that. I know Swansea People have kind of talked about Swansea a lot a few weeks ago, and a lot of people said they were due for regression, but, and they've overperformed three straight years, not near as much as Gladback. Um, and they don't really have the explanation of Gladback as where they, Gladback allows so few completions near their own goal. Swansea doesn't really have that, so <laughs> you'd think Swansea would be one of them. Tottenham, I wrote about Tottenham, I think Tottenham is definitely due for a big step back, but I haven't, I haven't looked deep enough to say for sure about anyone else in terms of teams that you are looking forward to watching stats or whatever like aside who are you look forward to next season yeah I said Napoli uh, because of the they got Empoli's manager and they're already a good team you know uh, glad back of course because that was I mean that was a fun article to write about them yeah to see how they do in the Champions League uh, if that can kind of carry over and if they can make the Champions League again um, and then two Spanish teams who are crazy presses. I, I didn't know. I mean, I vaguely knew about this. Mariah Vallecano and Celta, who I will be watching a lot of next year because they have some crazy off the, uh, off the chart metrics in, as far as pressing goes. And then, uh, I mean, Dortmund's kind of an obvious one because so many people have them in the top, whatever, six or eight and expected goals this year. And then they'll have the new coach and everything to see next year. And, and Southampton, who were top four in a lot of people's models and are kind of being written off again next year because they're going to lose maybe Schneiderlin. But they did the same thing last year and you know, were just as good. So that'll be, those are some teams I'll, I'll like to watch for next year. More away from the analytics things, um, the, the Torino piece, going back to that again, was sort of, even mm-hmm. if it was 
uh, I don't know, my like tactical understanding, as I said, is quite low, but you had quite a good grasp of it. Do you read like around the tactical things, say with um, the Spieler, I'm not going to pronounce it, but the, <laughs> the, that site and uh, like other sort of more tactical pieces, say Tom Payne as well, write some really in-depth stuff. Do you t- pay attention to that or is it just sort of I, things you match? Yeah, I read that. I, I, I do read some of that stuff. Um, and I think it's a, I mean, if, if those are, those are great stuff. And a lot of times I, I just, I'm in awe of people that can notice that stuff during the game, you know, cause I watch a game and I sometimes see, Oh wow. You know, that fullback's getting free a lot, you know, and I can't tell why he's free. I'm just a, I'm just a guy watching the game. And so I can look, I like to go back and look and see, Oh, well, you know, the right, right winger wasn't doing any defense or anything. <coughs> and so I think, yeah, you know, people that can notice the little tactical variations are great. And, I mean, it, it teaches us a lot of stuff about the game. And I, I think mixing that with, you know, kind of a, a stats-based approach would be even better. And, like I said, visuals, visuals are, are great, especially for players, especially for coaches. Uh, you know, those guys have very high, generally have very high visual IQs and can learn something really quick when you show it to them, and that's why I think, you know, little clips, little stats, little graphs to go along with what you're telling them will help a lot. Cool. Is there anything else you want to plug before we head out that's coming up or that you've written recently? Uh, no, I have, I have nothing in the pipeline, but if I do, I'll let, <laughs> I'll let you know. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, and uh, we've been really enjoying your stuff at Stats Bomb, so keep it up. Yeah, thanks, guys. Cheers. Spielverlagerung. Got there in the end.